You're listening to the midweek edition of the 1208 Podcast. Yes, welcome back to the Midweek Podcast. Today we are into the well-known story of Genesis 22, as opposed to the unknown story to many people from Genesis 21. Uh, This week is the sacrifice of Isaac. It is the binding of Isaac. It's that story in which God tells Abraham, now that I've given you a son, I need you to go sacrifice your son to me. And it blows our minds just hearing that. Uh, but there's a whole lot more going on in this story, and if you know the story, of course, you know it's not going to end that way, uh, which is a lesson in and of itself, actually, uh, I believe. So uh, with that being said, we've got a lot to cover in this, well, what truly feels like a horror story, right? Uh, divided between his love for God and his love for his son, what is he is he still going to be faithful to God when it gets in the way of his love for son and and things like that? And, and even when the uh, words that God has just spoken over him don't make any sense at all based on the prophetic promises that have been given to him, that this son would be a part of giving birth to a great nation. There's just there's so much going on in this delicately crafted horror story. Uh, that uh, there's a lot that we could hit on today uh, and a lot more that we could if we truly wanted to keep going. So with that being said, we're just going to kind of dive in, go with the flow here. Uh, But before we do that, before we get into this horror story of sorts, let's remember where we just were. Uh, Because where we just were is setting us up for so much more of a slap in the face when this one comes up. Because if we were to look back at uh, Genesis 21, which we covered last week, we would see that things seem to finally be going according to plan and even the prophetic promises that God has set up. He told him one day he would have a son that he and Sarah would give birth to. He is now well into uh, his seniority. He is very, very, very old. Never seemed like that promise was going to come true. In fact, for that promise to come true, it was going to take a miracle because scientifically, he and his wife could no longer have a baby. And yet, they do anyways. God does the miracle. They have the child. And so instead of things going like, you know, not according to plan, and instead of Abraham and Sarah thinking that this is ridiculous, they now see in their very old age, wow, God came through on this promise that made no sense, that seemed impossible. Seems that Yahweh, our God, can actually do miracles like this that we just thought like, Maybe he couldn't. I, you know, you don't know what's going through their mind. But uh, they they had other gods that they were following before Yahweh called them and told them leave them behind and come and follow me. Right. So like their understanding of what their little G gods can do now, uh, compared to what Yahweh himself can do, they're seeing like wow, Yahweh is 
is very, very powerful. Look at what he can do. Uh, perhaps they're surprised in their old age at what he can do. I don't know. You know, just trying to get our mind into to their mind. But because they now finally have that son, things are going well. They're seeing the power of God, and and it's it's showing them more than they could have perhaps imagined. And where it left us in Genesis twenty one was more security, more prophetic promise, uh, because to some extent, we see Abraham now kind of living, ah, it's kind of hard to, it's hard to say that he's in the land that his descendants are going to be promised, but it said, you know, Abraham sojourned many days in the land of the Philistines. Uh, and just like, I don't know, when you look at a map, it kind of has this general idea that he's now like, he's finding security in this land that one day his descendants will uh, seemingly inherit if he's in this correct place. So he's there. He plants a tree. If you remember, he plants a tree in Beersheba and calls there on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. And we ended last week's podcast saying, why is he calling God the everlasting God? Well, perhaps because God has promised him that he would be a great and mighty nation. He's now getting towards the end of his life. He secured a well for for uh, living off of in this uh, foreign land where he's he's just crashing. He's sojourning uh, that one day his descendants may take if that's where he's at. And then on top of that, he's got his son. And it's from his son that all these descendants are going to come. So all these prophetic words throughout Genesis that have been declared over Abraham, it is finally coming true. He's rejoicing. You are the everlasting God, the one who sees, perhaps he's stating in that, the one who sees all these promises that you've made that go well beyond me. And things are just finally coming together. It's important that we have all this in mind, because once we have all this in mind, Genesis 22 is such a huge slap in the face, right? Like Abraham's old, we're probably thinking like, all right, we're getting towards the end of my life. I've lived well into my years. I didn't think, I I was unsure that it was going to happen, and yet it's all happening just as Yahweh told me it would. And then bam, Genesis 22 Everything seems to change in a moment. So let's go ahead and enter into that story. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So again, the story's just taken this radical shift, this huge change. The everlasting God that he had just worshipped moments ago, now he's probably wondering, like, all of the promises within that everlasting covenant, what do you mean, sacrifice my son? Now, it doesn't really zoom in on a lot of conversation. That That's part of what makes this story so tense. We don't know what's going through Abraham's mind. We don't know what's going through his son's mind. We don't know what's going through the servants' minds who go with them or Sarah's mind when Abraham says he's going on this journey. And so we're left to speculate all of the different tense scenarios that that might be going on in, in, in this feeling of, of shock. Uh, so let's 
let's just kind of look at a few verses at a few of the words that we just covered before we continue. First off, I want us to see the fact that our first verse in Genesis 22, 1 says, After these things, God tested Abraham. So I think this is important. Um, it sets us up to recognize that the rest of the story is a test. Uh, it, it wants us, I, I think to some extent, it wants ancient people to understand before they've even read this story, that this is a test. Because ancient people uh, tended to um, find themselves committing uh, the the sin of child sacrifice. So ancient people just throughout uh, different uh, um, cults throughout ancient times, they would commit child sacrifice. Now the Bible is crystal clear that God abhors this. He hates this. He does not want child sacrifice. That's all the more uh, kind of confusion for us when we read this passage at first, because it seems like God is calling Abraham to do child sacrifice. Uh, But uh, for Abraham, that probably wouldn't have struck him um, as harshly as it strikes us today right? Because in Abraham's culture, the people around him, he's probably heard these stories of people who have sacrificed their children to their gods. And so now Yahweh has asked him to do the same thing. And and what's going through his mind is probably like, wow, I, I didn't know that this was going to be a part of the expectation of Yahweh, the, the God the one true God that I follow, and yet now he's he's called me into this. But, but right from the beginning, Abraham doesn't know this, but the people writing Genesis for you, they want you to understand this. Right from the beginning, it's saying, listen up, this was a test. So before you even finish this story, know up front that the conclusion was, since it was a test, uh, there's this conclusion that you're guessing that uh, Isaac is not actually going to be sacrificed. He's not actually going to die. So before you go and think just by reading uh, this opening statement that God would expect you to kill a child, to sacrifice a child on his behalf, know in advance this is just a test. It does not happen. God is not that kind of God. Now, Abraham doesn't have the law yet, which will tell him that God hates child sacrifice. In fact, uh, Israel later is going to get in huge trouble. Part of the reason they're going to end up in exile is because of their great sin, and that includes things like child sacrifice. So it's very clear from the full Bible that God's like, I hate it. Don't do it. But in this particular story, uh, Abraham does not yet know this side of God Uh, And he's learning it right here, which is actually another important piece of this story. To some extent, I would say that this story is teaching every Israelite, every Yahweh worshiper, hey, pay attention. Here's the one time where God told someone to sacrifice a child and what happened in the end. He told him, no, don't do it. He stops him. That's how this story is going to end. So to some extent, this is like a story, I would say, training anyone who reads it. If you're going to follow after Yahweh, 
understand uh, that that is not a way in which he works. And the one time where that happens in a story that Yahweh commanded it, he intentionally stops it from happening. Which for Abraham, I would say screamed volumes, right? Because he follows it all the way to the end where it looks like there's going to be that sacrifice. But then God stops him, showing him, look, I'm not that kind of God. Uh, this, this, in fact, um, was a test of your faithfulness to me. And you see that, to some extent, a test probably would be good for Abraham, right? I mean, there is great promise that has been put on Abraham. Uh, great prophetic words have been spoken over Abraham. And Abraham has actually shown that uh, he his his life is not uh, perfect morally, right? I mean, we could just look back over some of the things that he's done. He's he's uh, given his wife away as a wife to other people uh, when when he's lied to them. He's like, no, this is just my sister. You know, like he's trying to like protect himself, but put his wife in danger or at least like moral uh He's putting his wife in moral danger, let alone like, you know, sexual danger, how she'll be treated by these kings who have tried to take her as their wife. In fact, in in those stories, we've seen that uh, these kings, when they find out that it's Abraham's wife, like they freak out. They are looked at as like the moral ones in the conversation. Whereas Abraham, the follower of God, of Yahweh, is seen as is like kind of questionable. So we've seen, like to some extent, Abraham could use some tests to see uh, where he's at. Um, on top of that, right, we've got the story of Hagar. And this one perhaps is, is uh, one of the biggest failed tests that he had. Because Abraham was told, look, you are going to have a son. You're going to have a son. I'm going to give you a son. And Abraham, you know, he's patient, he waits, but he doesn't, quite honestly. Him and Sarah don't have the faith to believe that God is going to come through and give them a son. They don't have the faith that God can do the miracle. Because eventually they just come to the conclusion, like, we just got to have this kid our own way. And so they use the surrogate function of their time. They take on... uh, Sarah gives her servant Hagar to Abraham as a wife. Abraham sleeps with Hagar, and therefore uh, Hagar gets pregnant with Ishmael, which is, though it's Hagar's genetic son, it is technically Sarah's son because Sarah owns Hagar as a slave. So using the ancient culture of their time, Hagar gets persecuted. Hagar gets uh, kind of thrown into this mix. Uh, there's a um, there's a whole soap opera that takes place, and in the end of this soap opera, Hagar is the one who gets the most persecuted. She's chased out into the um, wilderness where she thinks that her son and her are both going to die, and it's in that moment, in the final moments, where she thinks it's all over. God comes through and and takes care of her. Um, But all of that happens. Again, we've got moral failure. We've got questionable ethics. uh, And we've got just complete denial 
of of believing that God was truly going to do what it sounded like he said he was going to do. He told them that they would have a child. Abraham and Sarah would have a child. And eventually they gave up. They weren't patient enough to wait to the end when God was going to come through in his own way. They went about it their own way instead. And so they gave birth to uh, uh, a child that was outside of this entire prophetic word and this entire plan. So again, does Abraham need to be tested? Yeah, he's kind of failed uh, tests in the past. He's kind of failed following through with what God's called him to do. Uh, and uh, though he is, um, uh, though he talks to God and he is God's follower and he carries this huge prophetic promise on his life and his family's life, just in general, he hasn't been like, you know, <laughs> the perfect follower. So now this is the test. This is the big one. Abraham, you finally have everything that uh, you were promised. You finally are in this moment of peace where you feel like you are going to get there uh, and going to inherit everything that I told you to inherit. Now, here's the test. Give it all away. The, the son who is going to make you a great nation, put it on the line. Forget about it. I want you to sacrifice him to me. Can you give me back the promise I gave you? Can you give me everything? Uh, can you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? And who knows, maybe Abraham's thinking to himself, Man, this, this isn't the way that Yahweh operates, so I'll go through with it knowing that he'll stop me at some point. Maybe he, he knows God that well um, based on his, his uh, I would say, based on his lack of trust that God was going to do the miracles that he did in the past, I would say that there's still some things that he doesn't know about God and that in this case he's just responding to um, the same kind of call that the cultures and nations around him have done to their gods. So now he's doing to to his God. So there you go. Well, the test is set up and uh, we've now kind of set the entrance to this. Let's come back in a moment and continue moving through this. So we hit on this in verse 2. God tells Abraham, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So I want to hone in on this location, right? Uh, So, well, first off, it's actually something interesting here. We're getting finally to the end of Abraham's story. We're going to start moving into 
his son's life soon, as well as the death of Sarah and eventually the death of Abraham as well. Interestingly, we almost see Abraham's story coming full circle back to the beginning. Because right here, we have God saying what? He said, go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I shall tell you. Now, for me, this takes us back to the very start of Abraham's story, Genesis 12:1. Now, the Lord said to Abraham, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. So now we're going like full circle. Abraham's whole story began by leaving his family behind and leaving everything that represented his family behind uh, and and going not to a specific place, but rather a place that God would show him. It's almost like, look, Abraham, just start walking. I'll tell you when to stop. Or along the way, I will point to you where it is that I have you going. So Abraham's whole story kind of started with a test. Can you be faithful enough to leave everything behind and follow me? And can you walk in the blind faith of me not even telling you where you're headed I'll tell you when to stop. Now, at the end of Abraham's life, there's this even grander test, right? And this time it's, okay, just start walking uh, and uh, go go to the land of Moriah. So he's got some direction. But as he approaches it, he's going to say, you know, he's going to point out the mountain, uh, uh, the right mountain that he should be going to. So with that being said, again, he's got kind of like a, a journey ahead of him, which God will instruct along the way. And uh, this is kind of like bringing us back to another test when we when we think of it in that light. Now, the place that he's going to is the land of Moriah. And uh, this, this is a bit confusing for scholars to kind of understand why it is called Moriah. Now, from a biblical perspective, we have this place mentioned one other time. And so if we were to just kind of look at uh, um, from a biblical perspective, what is this place? Well, it would actually carry quite a bit of significance. That's because we find it in 2 Chronicles 3.1 when Solomon's building the temple. There it says, Then Solomon began to build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah, where the Lord had appeared to David his father at the place that David had appointed on the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. All that being said, there is this ancient uh, belief that uh, the same place where Abraham had uh, um, gone to sacrifice Isaac on this mountain, that that became the place where uh, Jerusalem, uh, Mount Zion, the house of God, the temple of Solomon, was built. Now, is that actually the case? Again, according to ancient literature from Josephus, the Targums, the Talmud, um, even the Book of Jubilees and the Book of Jubilees 1813, all these would say that like this is the same place. However, there's a lot of difficulty from that from like a more critical archaeological perspective, partially because uh, Jerusalem, uh, Sarna in the JPS commentary would say, one difficulty is that Jerusalem is not a three-day trek from Beersheba and would hardly have been necessary to carry a supply of wood to that region 
which we're going to see in a second. Abraham takes a bunch of wood with him for the sacrifice. Now, I'll admit, it would be pretty cool to see, like, that this mountain was, like, this sacred place that later, you know, like, God's presence is found there right now. God leads him to it. And then later, God's temple is built where there's already kind of this sacred space where God had led someone before. That would be really cool, tied up in a nice bow. Uh, unfortunately, it's difficult to reach a real concrete uh, answer on that, uh, according to many commentaries. Though, again, Second Chronicles would be the only other place that you really run into Mount Moriah. So maybe there's some kind of like theological significance you could take from that, even if you couldn't take like an actual archaeological um, significance from it. Okay, so let's get back to uh, Mount Moriah, or sorry, in, in our particular story, the land of Moriah, because uh, that, again, is where Abraham is headed. And we've learned throughout this podcast so far that words can be important. There's usually some kind of translation behind a lot of names, whether they be place names like Beersheba, as we saw last week, or name names like Isaac or Ishmael or Abraham or Sarah. Like there's interpretations of their names that we are meant to see as significant. So the land of Moriah, what, what's the translation of that? Uh, Sarna gives three possibilities to go along with here. Uh, so first off, he says... Uh, that uh, it could have to do with uh, seeing or vision. In fact, I think some translations are going to tell you that it's like the land of, of vision. But seeing or vision is one way in which you could interpret this. Um, you also get uh, another way to look at it. It could be mora ya, which would which would translate more or less like fear of the Lord. So like we see in this story that Abraham is fearing the Lord. We actually see the word fear used in verse 12, where it says, uh, I now know, for now I know that you fear God. So there could be like this linking uh, that this is a place named Mora, Yah, fear of the Lord, because uh, this is a place where Abraham learned to fear God. That could be another way to go. Uh, for Sarna's sake, Sarna would say that uh, the most reasonable way to interpret this word might be related to the oak uh, of Mora, which was at the beginning of Abraham's story. Once again, uh, he was told to go to the land that I will show you, which we've already seen connections back to that. Now, uh, when he gets to Canaan, said in verse uh, Genesis 12, 6, Abram passed through the land of the place at Shechem to the oak of Morah. At, at that time, the Canaanites were in the land. So here you have him coming to this kind of sacred place, this terebinth, um, and Morah means teacher. So here he is at this terebinth, Morah, and now at the end of his story, he's going to the land of Moriah. And Moriah can be more or less like the feminine um, version of the word Morah. So let me just read the way in which uh, Sarna would interpret it uh, most, most officially. Hebrew Moriah can well be a feminine form of Morah, teacher which means teacher. Actually, 
The fact that there are place names compounded of Mora, such as the Terebinth of Mora and Gibeoth Mora, renders this explanation most attractive, particularly since it has the first and last revelation of God to Abraham take place at sites with similar-sounding names, thus contributing to the literary framework within which the biography of the patriarch is encased. So in other words, you start with uh, Mora, you end with Moriah, uh, one could be masculine, the other one feminine, uh, but both meaning teacher. God's full teaching is kind of taking place in the life of Abraham's story. You got you got your bookends. Could be a way to look at it. Uh, so uh, one last thing that I want to focus on as far as location goes is the fact um, that we're headed to the mountains. Mountains are actually very important when it comes to sacred spaces in ancient uh, Near Eastern thought. So uh taking from the word biblical commentary uh gordon j winham he would say in ancient mythology the gods were often thought to dwell on mountaintops and the canaanites are said to have worshipped on the high mountains deuteronomy 12 2. but more pertinent for our study the jerusalem temple was built on mount zion and mount sinai is preeminently the place of revelation where god comes down to speak with his people so clearly, in biblical thought, also, a mountain was a suitable place to meet God. And he goes on from there, but uh, that kind of gets you the point. But there is a lot more that we could say on this subject. Michael Heiser actually covers it really well. He gets into a lot about ancient Near Eastern cosmic geology, understanding like how uh, certain parts of landscapes could be considered to be like uh, these places where supernatural beings dwelt in ancient times. Uh, in, gardens and mountains were a big one. These were like these cosmic places, uh, but at the same time, they were these physical pieces of the landscape. So actually, I'm going to read a little bit from uh, from his book, The Unseen Realm. This, this may be a bit longer than I usually quote, but just stick with me here. The divine abodes of gods, the places they lived and where they met for governing the affairs of the human world, were portrayed in several ways. Two of the most common were gardens and mountains. Eden is described as both in the Old Testament. So I'll pause there for a minute. Yes, Eden is this garden as far as you know it, as far as we all read it in Genesis. But if you were to look elsewhere in the Bible, when there's a reference to Eden, there, I believe uh, might be Ezekiel, there's this one reference that kind of makes it out to be not just a garden, but a mountain as well. So that's what he's talking about when he says Eden can be seen as both in the Old Testament. Uh, ancient people thought of their gods living in luxuriant gardens or mountains for simple reasons. It made sense that the gods would have the best lifestyle because, well, they're gods. Cosmic celebrities can't possibly live like we do. The ancient Near East was primarily an agrarian culture where most people subsisted day-to-day, hand-to-mouth. The few who didn't live that way were kings or priests, and thinking as the ancients did, those few had been chosen for that elevated status by the gods. The environment was hot and arid. Life depended on finding water and harnessing its power. That's why the world's first civilizations were founded along rivers. Surely, the gods lived in a place where water was abundant, where life-sustaining vegetation and fruit grew everywhere, where an abundance of animals were nourished to fatness. The gods lived in places where there was no conceivable lack. 
paradise. Mountain peaks were the domain of the gods because no humans lived there. Ancient times were not like modern times. People didn't recreationally climb mountains. They had no equipment with which to get very far if they tried. Mountains were remote and forbidding, the perfect places for gods to get away from pesky humans. Mountain peaks touched the heavens, which were obviously the domain of the gods. This sort of thinking in part explains why Egypt's temples are carved and painted with the imagery of luscious gardens, or why pyramids and ziggurats were built. These structures were mountains made by human hands, which served as gateways to the spiritual world, the realm of the gods in life or in death. They were metaphors in stone. Okay, so that's from Michael Heiser right there, and I think that's really helpful to understand just the ancient perspective uh, he just explained why gardens were places where the gods would be found because it's this place of like abundance. Uh, and he just explained why mountains were a place where the gods might be found because they were literally in the heavens. They were up there and it was a place where they could get away from humanity. So a lot of times uh, the um, the image of where you might expect to find a god living would be a hybrid of these two. A luscious garden on a mountain, which Eden can be painted as both in the Old Testament. That being said, it's not all that shocking to suddenly see uh, from an ancient perspective of writing here in uh, um, this story of, of Abraham sacrificing Isaac. It's not all that shocking to see that he is being called to make this sacrifice on a mountain. Because a mountain might be where you'd already expect to find God. And it would be probably a steep mountain, because as we see, eventually he's going to get off of his donkey to climb it alone with Isaac. Uh, maybe the donkey could make it, but there's also this possibility that it was just too steep to, to really take a donkey up. Not like, you know, not like, cliff climbing because that's not an ancient thing uh, that's not possible <laughs> but at the same time it's not just like a it doesn't seem to just be like a, a dull hill of a mountain so all that being said we now have location in mind let's take a break and then continue through up in verse 3. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. So uh, he's taking wood along with him on this journey, which sounds a little strange to us because we're like, why don't you just chop down some trees when you get where you're going? Something like that. Uh, but the implication, again, seems to show us that Abraham doesn't know where he's going. He, he has to take wood with him 
Because what if he gets to a land that has no trees or is kind of deserty or, or maybe the mountain doesn't have anything that's suitable to chop down. So you see him kind of making preparations ahead of time. Though there's something interesting here that a lot of us probably wouldn't even notice unless we were paying really close attention. Uh, he rises early in the morning, saddles his donkey, and then cuts the wood after that. It just seems kind of out of order here, you know. He saddled, and then he took uh, his two young men with him, and then he cut the wood. So Winham likes to point out here uh, that it is surprising that he cut the wood after saddling his donkey and gathering together his servants and Isaac. It would have been more sensible to cut the wood first. This illogical order hints at Abraham's state of mind. Is he so bemused that he cannot think straight? Is he quite collectedly trying to keep everybody in the dark about the purpose of the journey till the last possible moment? Or is he trying to postpone the most painful part of the preparation till last? All of the interpretations are possible, indeed are not mutually exclusive, and need to be borne in mind as the narrative unfolds. Now, one of the really difficult things about reading Winham's commentary is he paints such a good picture of the continuation of this. Here, Winham's getting us to think, like, why is he cutting wood after getting the donkey and getting the people and leaving? You know, like, what's going on in his mind? It just seems off. Uh, but we continue to see things that Winham pulls to our attention that really paint, again, a horror story of just like how mentally distraught Abraham must be as he continues uh, through this journey. So anyways, let's continue. He cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. On the third day, again, Winham calls us to pay attention. For three days now, Abraham has been tested. For three days, he's been spending time with his son, going to a place where he has to mentally prepare himself to follow through with what God told him to do, which is to sacrifice his son. Like, three days. This is, this is a lot to take in. And you could just imagine, you know, if this was a movie, for those three days, how you could illustrate just the emotional tension going through Abraham's mind, and perhaps the rest of the party. At some point, they've got to catch on, or at least wonder like where they're going, why they have this wood that they're taking with them, and if they are going to have an offering of some sort, where is the offering? Is the donkey that they're on the offering? If so, how are they going to get home? If that's not the offering, are they going to find someone somewhere? They still haven't found an animal anywhere, it seems, or what's going on? You know, so there's just lots of questions that you would continue to to paint here. Uh, but Abraham gets to the place and he sees the place from afar. We don't know what it is that distinguishes this place other than the fact that he lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. So God has indicated to him somehow or told him somehow that this is a place because God said that he would find it. Later, rabbinic literature would say that uh, he and Isaac saw a cloud over the mountain, um, which I'm guessing 
you know, I guess you could say it was just like a cloud that drew attention to itself. But since God's presence is often seen in uh, the Old Testament when he shows up as kind of a, a cloudy presence, you could also just go the route that rabbinic literature was saying, like, this is the glory of God in a cloud, a glory cloud. This is his presence up on that mountain. Let's head towards that mountain. Um, whatever the case would be, that's just rabbinic literature. There's nothing in the Bible that indicates there was a cloud there. So just somehow Abraham has deduced that this is the place. So verse five, then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey and I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son, which again is just painting the picture of what's coming. Isaac is carrying the wood that soon will be carrying him. It's lying on top of his shoulders. Soon he'll be lying on top of it. And then Abraham, uh, he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So this fire that he's holding, it could be, I guess it could be like a lamp of some sort that they lit some time ago, three days earlier or something. Uh, more likely, Sarna thinks that it's just like a fire stone, you know, like it's probably not something that's been lasting for three days, uh, but something that's used uh, to, to make fire. But he takes the fire and the knife. And that knife right there, uh, I want to draw attention to as well, because um, this is not a common knife found in the Bible. This is a specific kind of knife that is rarely mentioned in the Bible. So this knife in Hebrew, it's machelet, which in Judges 19.29 uh, is used to uh, when a Levite uh, this is a very disturbing story. It, it, we we actually talked about it recently because we looked at the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, and I mentioned that Israel has its own Sodom and Gomorrah down the road in Judges 19. Uh, we're not going to read that story right now, but in that story, there's a Levite. So the Levite's usually the one who does kind of ritual sacrifices. The knife that he pulls out, the machelet, is uh, what he uses to to cut apart uh, human that pieces are going to be mailed to all the rest of the people of Israel. It's a very confusing and disturbing story. I mean, it's just another horror story in the Bible, um, which we're not going to get into right now. But because we see a Levite using the knife in Judges 19, it would possibly lead us to the conclusion that a machelet is is partially used as a kind of ritual sacrifice type knife. Uh, we also might conclude that it's kind of a, a long knife, just given that it was used for human dissection in Judges 19. Um, but in Proverbs 30, 14, we also see it referenced. Uh, there are those who use teeth, uh, sorry, there are those whose teeth are swords, whose fangs are knives, that's mechelet, to devour the poor from off the earth, the needy from among mankind. So since Proverbs uses this knife, this machelet, in uh, parallel with sword, it gives us the idea that it probably was a large and heavy um, kind of uh, dissection tool or sacrifice tool is probably the better word. So that being said, this machelet is, uh, you know, kind of disturbing when we look at it in all this light. 
uh, but this is probably something like what Abraham is carrying with him. Needless to say, we're really starting to feel something of what's going on in Abraham and and Isaac's mind. I mean, uh, now they've left the donkey. They're headed up the mountain. They don't have a sacrifice. And so this is where things start to feel really scary, really dark, right? Um, because here, uh, well, let's pick up. So they went, both of them together, and Isaac said to his father Abraham, this would just break any father's heart, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. He said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. And you got to wonder, you know, like, do they know, does, does he have an idea of what is going on? Is he picking up on it? Is is Isaac aware that some people sacrifice their children to their false gods? And is that what's about to happen to him? He's probably starting to have more questions go through his mind than he has for the last three days. And he probably already had questions because his dad might have been fairly secretive. Most likely Sarah has no idea what's going on, right? I don't know if she would have ever let him out the door if he had said something like that. So... There's got to be some some real difficult psychological stuff going on at this point in the story. All right, we get to the sacrifice next, so let's take a break and then continue. Enter verse 9, we find ourselves again uh, with this recognition, recognition that we're kind of walking into sacred space from, from this perspective. Because in verse 9 it says, When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order. And let's pause there for a minute. So Abraham built an altar. Again, we've seen throughout... Uh, um, throughout these stories of Abraham's time that Abraham often built altars after he had encountered God or found a place that seemed to be like a a sacred space where God's presence could be um, encountered or had been encountered in his life. Um, But it also just says very simply, when they came to the place of which God had told them. Uh, I know that doesn't sound significant, the place, Uh, But that's actually a common designation for the tabernacle throughout the Bible. So, for example, um, Exodus 15, 17, You will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain. The place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode. The sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. So you've got mountain and place there. Um, Behold, uh, this is, sorry, Exodus 23, 20. Behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I have prepared. So again, it's God's place that he's set up. And Leviticus 4.24, they shall lay his 
hand on the head of a goat and kill it in the place where they kill the burnt offering before the Lord. So I know the word just the place, like that doesn't sound all that significant, but you just see throughout uh, uh, the way that that word can be used in the Bible that this is like sacred space, or we just saw it as sacred space in God's tabernacle. We just saw it as a place where uh, an offering was was taken, uh, a place that God had prepared. And we could go on, because in Deuteronomy, uh, the expression, the place the Lord God will choose, is used one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Uh, that's seven times um, throughout uh, just Deuteronomy alone. And then you also get some other uh, places throughout First Chronicles, throughout uh, the Psalms, Isaiah, Jeremiah. So the expression, the place, can actually be a, a, an important uh, signal of kind of like sacred or holy space, to say the least. And again, uh, we also see that we've entered into that sacred space of sorts because Abraham's building an altar here. And this is where things get even darker and cause us to wonder again what's going through people's minds and how people are interacting. Because after Abraham's built the altar and laid the wood in order, it then says he, uh, he had gone on and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Now, this brings about a lot of questions, right? Because Abraham, he's very, very, very old at this point. Uh, How does he have the strength to bind his son if his son was not willing to have this moment happen? You know, again, we can only read into things so much here, but there truly does seem to be the possible implication here that Isaac was willing to be sacrificed, that somewhere along the way, between that asking where is the sacrifice and getting to the top, Isaac had come to the conclusion or had a conversation with Abraham about uh, the fact that he would be the one that was going to be the sacrifice. And then, as odd as it sounds, it sounds like Isaac is, is open to this. And I know that sounds crazy to us to be like, there's no way. Of course, he would run away and get out of there. There's no way that Isaac would let that happen. That's what's going through our minds. But again, try to put yourself in ancient culture where um, they would have expected gods to possibly make this request of them. And if they don't know the fullness of the morality of Yahweh yet, and that he is, uh, he would never ask them to do this, then it's possible that despite in our minds be like, run, get out of there. There's no way I would let you do that. Is it possible in their minds that Isaac would see this as something noble to do because, uh, because, well, his life first off was brought into this world as a miracle And now it's being offered, now it's being asked to be offered. Is Isaac going along with this because he sees it as something noble? Now, before you're like, Jamin, there's no way, you actually see this possibility later in the Bible. So if you were to fast forward to Judges 11, you find Jephthah, who makes this vow that 
if God helps him uh, beat the Ammonites, then he says, whatever comes out from the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it up for a burnt offering. So this is the vow that he makes. I'm guessing he's thinking like a pet of some sort, like a dog meets me or some other kind of animal that he might have had as a pet. But that's not what happens. His daughter meets him. And in verse 34, it picks up, it says, Then Jephthah came to his home at Mitzpah, and behold, his daughter came out to meet him with tambourines and with dances. She was his only child. Besides her, he had neither son nor daughter. And as soon as he saw her, he tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low, and you have become the cause of great trouble to me. For I have opened my mouth to the Lord, and I cannot take back my vow. And she said to him, My father, you have opened your mouth to the Lord. Do to me according to what has gone out of your mouth, now that the Lord has avenged you on your enemies, on the Ammonites. So she said to her father, Let this thing be done for me. Leave me alone two months, that I may go up and down on the mountains and weep for my virginity. I am my companions. So he said, Go. Then he sent her away for two months, and she departed, she and her companions, and wept for her virginity on the mountains. And at the end of two months she returned to her father, who did with her according to his vow that he had made. She had never known a man, and it became a custom in Israel that the daughters of Israel went year by year to lament the daughter of Jephthah, the Gileadite, four days in the year. Okay, I feel like I should make a few uh, statements here. First off, we are learning right now that God hates child sacrifice and would never have anyone uh, do child sacrifice. Yes, the story of Isaac looks like it's going to go that way, but then he stops it, and that should make a huge statement to the rest of the Bible, uh, to the rest of future um, descendants and people who follow God, like God does not want child sacrifice. And in case that's not clear enough, again, later in the Bible, it's going to be crystal clear. God abhors it. He hates it. He'll exile his own people for doing it. So with that being said, we just need to understand like this story of Jephthah sacrificing his child is uh, uh, not God's will because God has already said that's not his will, right? Okay, so why is this story in the Bible? Well, it's a story of uh, humanity doing something. It's not a story of God doing something. Jephthah vowed that he would do it, and if Jephthah knew God's character better and had listened to God's character and had listened to his voice, then he would have heard or seen God teach or say, Jephthah, don't you dare sacrifice your daughter to me. I don't even care that you made the vow. You will not go through with that kind of vow to me. So, I mean, just when you look at God's character in the rest of the Bible, you know that's clear, right? Therefore, when you read the story of Jephthah, you have to understand that Jephthah and his daughter don't have a fuller understanding of who God is, because if they did, they would have known better. Jephthah's daughter would have said, well, dad, you can't do that. You know God would never ask you to do that, and that the the law already told you that you can't do that. If he knew the law better of God, then he would have known that. 
But here, you've seen throughout the Bible that promises are like this really important thing, right? Vows are a very important thing. And if Jephthah made a vow to God, then it seems like it's so important in his mind that he's chosen that over the fact that he can't do that. He's met with his own moral dilemma. I made a vow, and of all people, I vowed to God. I have to follow through with my vow. Even though, like, the other dilemma is, I can't sacrifice my child. I'm not supposed to do that. You see both his daughter and him, they lack the fuller understanding of God's character, and they choose, honestly, to sin by following through with a vow that God would never have them follow through with. This story never says that God asked him to do it. It's just something that he does because that's what what he uh, decided to write as his own narrative. Anyways, the reason we brought all that up, yes, I do think it says something into a sketchy situation about child sacrifice. It's still wrong in this case. Uh, But the reason that we initially brought it up was to show you what was the girl's reaction. Apparently, she didn't know that God doesn't like child sacrifice, and she saw it seemingly as a noble thing, uh, telling, telling her dad, yeah, you have to kill me for God. You need to go through with that. Like, that's wrong thinking, but that's the way she treated it, as something noble, because she she didn't know the truth that she shouldn't do that. Anyways, I, I read that to bring us back to Isaac. Is it possible that rather than run away, Isaac decided to be bound and sacrificed because he would have seen that as a noble thing to do? Based on the way that the girl acted down the road? Yes. And based on the fact that Abraham's so old that if his son uh, wanted to run away, he, he should have very easily been able to, I would say yes again. Isaac knew what he was getting into and, and agreed to this. Uh, if Abraham had the sense that maybe that wouldn't have been the case, as again, as dark as it sounds, you might have had a different story in which Abraham tried to, like, cut his son's throat or stab him when he wasn't paying attention, something like that. But that's not the way that this story is painted. Verse 10 says, Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. He said, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. All right. Let's pause and look at a few things here. First off, uh, the thing that shoots volumes to me, shoots volumes, shouts volumes to me these days. Uh, Now that I have this uh, understanding that we've looked at in the podcast, that the angel of the Lord is a manifestation of God, whom I've likened to Jesus because this is 
the angel of the Lord, every time that he shows up when it's actually like this God, God in, in the form of the angel of the Lord, like every time this angel shows up, he talks like he is God. He acts like he is God. And there's just something different about this angel. God says, my name is in him. All that being said, this angel's not just a simple messenger. He is God. Uh, and in this case, the angel of the Lord calls to him from heaven. Uh, and that that right there shouts urgency. Urgency is shouted twice here, actually. First off is the fact that the angel's calling from heaven. Uh, you've noticed that angels, based on like the Sodom and Gomorrah story, angels can show up on the earth and kind of walk around and whatnot. In fact, to get to Sodom and Gomorrah, they had to um, take a walk, it seems. Uh, actually, I'll read from Sarna. Sarna says, angels need to travel between heaven and earth, as is clear from uh, verse 28:12. If we were to go to there, that's the story of Jacob's ladder. Angels need to take a ladder down to the earth. I know that sounds weird, but that's the way that that vision plays out. So Sarna's saying, like, there's an example of having to travel between heaven and earth. He says, as well as from place to place on earth, as proved by 1822. That was Sodom and Gomorrah. So you've got a ladder between heaven and earth, and then you've got them traveling from Abraham's uh, land to Sodom and Gomorrah. This is all traveling around, it seems. But the critical urgency of the moment precludes their usual personal appearance, such as made to Hagar in 16.7. That's where Hag- uh, sorry, the angel of the Lord appeared to Hagar and talked to her, and dictates this exceptional mode of angelic intervention, just as it did in 21.17. So uh, when, when uh, God talked to Hagar the second time when her son was dying, uh, that was actually the angel of the Lord kind of talking from heaven. So there wasn't travel in that story, just in the same way there's no travel in this story. And again, uh, commentaries are like, it's because of the urgency. Uh, it, he just, he shouts, Abraham, Abraham. Like there's there's two shouts at Abraham as though like urgently trying to get his attention, uh, as though to stop him from going through with it any second now. But then on top of that, the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven. He didn't appear, but he called from heaven. So here you see the urgency and you see the angel of the Lord, which is God at work again. Because Abraham actually, like, he stops. He seems to recognize the voice that this is God who he's been talking to throughout uh, the times. He doesn't stop, like, who's calling my attention? Like, he knows that this is uh, the angel of the Lord. He knows that this is God who he's talked to before. Uh, so that being said, Abraham responds, here I am, which is interesting. This is the third time in this story where Abraham has said that. Like he's he's not a man of many words in this story. When God calls him originally, when he's testing him, he says, Abraham, and he responds, here I am. And then when he's walking up the mountain with Isaac, uh Isaac says, my father, and he responds, here I am, my son. And now here we have this third time, Abraham, Abraham, here I am. Almost as though he's like beside myself. What else do I say? I'm just present to do whatever it is I'm supposed to do. And then uh, the angel of the Lord says, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. 
This again is where it shouts volumes to me because here you have the angel of the Lord whom I've talked in this podcast before. I just see that the angel of the Lord is Jesus because we know that Jesus has always been around. The Bible is clear about that. And since the angel of the Lord is the physical manifestation of, of God throughout the Old Testament, it just makes sense to me that that physical manifestation of God in the New Testament is that angel of the Lord. Uh, so anyways, that being said, it speaks volumes to me here because here you have the angel of the Lord looking down on something that's going to happen to him down the road, right? In which a father will have to sacrifice his son. And that's that's uh, uh, the story that this angel steps in to, to stop here even though, you know, it might be a foreshadow to him of here's what I have to take on down the road for for my father and for the sake of, of many others. So with that being said, you know, I, I know that sounds like a weird way to kind of read into the story. It just stands out to me in a different light, uh, given the way that uh, I've kind of learned this, this uh, more really scholarly understanding of who the angel of the Lord is. So with that being said, uh, the angel stops it, even though he may be witnessing kind of a foreshadowing of something for himself. Uh, and that, uh, where where do we leave off? Du, 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 du. Verse 12, uh, the angel of the Lord said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked and behold, behind him was a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. All right, so right there we see kind of like this uh, this other sacrifice that is made instead of uh, Isaac. So it's kind of like a, a, a new replacement for what Isaac was originally supposed to do. Winham actually calls attention to the fact that this will kind of be a continual story throughout Israel, uh, where, uh, as elsewhere in, in Genesis, his actions foreshadowed the later history of Israel. They too were called to go on a three-day journey to worship God upon a mountain. There the Lord appeared to them and gave them the law and promised blessing to those who kept it. Every father in Israel was expected to dedicate his firstborn son to the Lord and to redeem him by offering a sacrifice. In Exodus, this redemption of the firstborn recalls the Passover in which the firstborn sons of Israel were spared judgment. It may be that Genesis itself is implicitly comparing Isaac's rescue to that sparing of Israel's firstborn sons in the Exodus and the ram Abraham offered to the Passover lamb. In later Jewish tradition, the Book of Jubilees, about 100 B.C., a connection is made between Passover and the sacrifice of Isaac. So, all that being said, you see the possibility of this story kind of like having future theological significance as well, or kind of replaying itself throughout Israel's history, and definitely with the history of, of Jesus down the road, right, in which God will give his own son to... to uh, uh, redeem us. Granted, uh, there's there are some interpretations of certain passages, particularly in Romans, where it seems like Jesus is being recognized as this kind of like Isaac to Jesus comparison. 
but uh, some commentaries will go on to say that there there really is no like official um, verse that you could look at to see the New Testament making the comparison between um, God, Abraham, and Isaac, between God and Jesus. Uh, and, and that's kind of confusing because there seems to be a very easy analogy to make, but at the same time, it's hard to say officially if, if the New Testament ever makes use of that story officially in that way. There are some passages that seem like it, though it's complicated as to if you fully see that. Though if you did, again, you know, it fits well into kind of the narrative going on here. So Abraham called the name of that place the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. And Jesus being our provision. All right, we're getting ready to wrap up here, but we got to get to the blessing before we do. So hold with us as we get ready to close it out. Verse 15, And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Okay, now, if you're like me for a long time, you like stop there. You're like, what? That's what's going to happen now? Like that, you already prophesied that was going to happen. And, and, and you made a covenant <laughs> with yourself that that would happen. Like now that's going to happen. Like all of a sudden it just seems like, all the words that you said before, like you had changed your mind or something, what do you do with that? I had to still be willing to sacrifice my son for that to come true. And uh, I don't think that's the case, actually. If you pay attention, um, yes, there are overlapping themes here. It is the, the same promise that uh, God had already promised Abraham, but now it's been kicked up a notch. It's because Abraham has been willing to sacrifice his son, to do this, this impossible thing, this difficult thing. Because of that, like the promise has been, it's been bumped up. There's more going on here. The ESV translation is, I will surely bless you. Winham would say, he would just use the word really, like now I will really bless you to to reinforce the blessing. Uh, Winham goes on, he says, I shall really multiply your descendants, that Abraham's descendants would be extremely numerous, indeed, as countless as the stars, has been said before, but never has there been num never has their number been compared to the sand which is on the seashore. Possess the gates of your enemies, because that was a new part of this uh, promise that was given here. Possess the gate of your enemies, i.e. conquer your enemies' cities, 
This, again, is a novelty, a more realistic formulation of the promise of the land than earlier promises, doubtless implying that its fulfillment is now closer than it was first enunciated. And then here's something else Winham points out that, that I didn't notice before. So um, in, in previous times, Abraham has been told that he will uh, be a blessing, right? I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Abraham was told, in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Now in this new blessing he says, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So Winham takes that and he says, this implies that the world has already been blessed through Abraham. Yet more blessing is to come through his descendants and all because he obeyed God. So here you see like his life again, it's kind of wrapping up. He has done his part of the blessing. And because he's been faithful to this, now there will be even more blessing down the road. Uh, God has seen this test that he's put him through and he has blessed him for, uh, for his his heart and finally being willing to give God everything, including his own son, whom all of the promise that had been given to him before was embodied in this son, Isaac. He has put everything on the line for the sake of following God and found out in the process that God would never have him kill his son in order to follow him. I hope that's clear. I think we've made that clear by now. Uh, Okay, verse 19. So Abraham returned to his young men, and they arose and went together to Beersheba. And Abraham lived at Beersheba. So there you go. We come to the end of this uh, very complicated, horrific story that is very difficult to to read. You know, the older you get, the more you see it. When you're a kid, you just kind of like nonchalantly take this story in, you know. But the older you get... And once you have kids, you're just like, oh, man, this, this is a crazy story that I don't really know what to do with. And so we've tried to embrace it a little bit deeper. All right. Uh, we're continuing on in the story of, uh, well, we'll be wrapping up the story of Abraham and Sarah more officially here in, in the following week or so. So we will catch up with you then and then move into a next portion of Genesis after that. So as we let you go, two things that you might want to do. One, you could just scroll down to the bottom of this podcast on iTunes, leave a review. just helps it get out a little bit more. But secondly, uh, we have a new conference we're going to be hosting at 1208 Greenwood. Uh, I'm going to be a part of it along with uh, Ken Brewer, a professor at Spring Arbor University, and uh, another pastoral friend who used to go to our church but now pastors a church out in West Virginia, Stephen Halacki. The three of us, along with uh, other pastors, Maisha Cunningham, Michael Popenhagen, and uh, uh, the list just goes on, uh, we're all going to be um, teaching on spiritual gifts to help everybody learn how they work, uh, to embrace them on a deeper level and employ them in our churches for the sake of mission. So if you would like to learn more about that, go to 1208greenwood.com slash reveal. Once you're there, you'll find the link to register for the event. It's March 14th, 2020. So you got plenty of time to register right now. And uh, yeah, we're giving you a heads up so you can get ahead of the game. Seating is limited. Only about 200 people will be able to fit in the building because uh, we're an urban church in downtown Jackson, an old factory for radio parts. So 
We'd love to have you be a part of the conference, though, to learn how you can use this. So get yourself and people from your church, your friends, registered. Again, 1208greenwood.com slash reveal. And we hope to see you then in March.